Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to the Truth That Heals podcast. I am your host, Ryan Anthony Hernandez. And for today's episode, we have special guest, Dr. Yanya Lalich. She is a very well-known cult expert, and she'll be here kind of dissecting what are the what are the things that I had experienced and to help me and other survivors understand what actually was taking place and also she'll be breaking down ways in which uh, we can look forward and find hope in recovery because recovery is possible um, but before that interview takes place before I share that interview I kind of want to give a little background on how it is that I got started on this quest to understanding what the cult life was for me. And it started maybe a year and a half ago when I pressed play on this documentary on Hulu. Uh, it's an A&E documentary called Cult and Extreme Beliefs. And as I was watching each episode, learning what other people had gone through, seeing their pain, and having Dr. Yanya Lalic Uh, break it down as I saw these other victims these other survivors I began to realize and to accept that what I had been in what I thought was a simple religious community unfortunately had so much cult toxicity attached to it and I needed to see that documentary to kind of open my eyes and to help me understand. And from that moment of understanding that I was in a cult, from there I was able to kind of understand what it was that I was going through and start a healing process there. And it's been a great journey of understanding and recovering and I'm so honored to have Dr. Yanya Lalich speak with us today and hopefully you will also be able to uh, find some nuggets of truth, uh, wisdom in what she will be sharing with us and uh, before we, we press play and allow that interview to, uh, uh, to start, I just want to remind the audience that, hey, hope is possible, recovery is possible, and even if you have family members there uh, who are in a cult or friends, uh, don't give up on them, and Dr. Yanya Lalic will really, when, when you hear this talk, I hope it gives you uh, some light, uh, some hope, and healing. So without further ado, uh, here is the interview with Dr. Yanya Lalic. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to this podcast, The Truth That Heals. Today, I am joined by a very special guest. Her name is Dr. Yanya Lalic. She is the Professor Emerita of Sociology, founder of the Center for Research on Cults and Coercion, co-founder of Take Back Your Life Recovery, 
the international authority on cults and coercion. And she is the author of many books, including Take Back Your Life, something mm-hmm. that I'm I'm really enjoying as I'm reading. Uh, thank you for joining us, Yanya. How are you doing today? Oh, thanks, Ryan. I'm doing great, and I'm really happy to be here with you. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Um, first of all, I want to share with you how I got involved in my own recovery. Okay. And that was actually by watching you on <laughs> on Hulu, on A&E, on this show called Cults and Extreme Belief. Right. As I was watching it, I was thinking, oh, my God, everything that I am seeing in these other people is something that I experienced. However, I didn't want to recognize it when I was examining my own life. Is that normal that when people see other cult members, they kind of reflect more? Or how does that work? Yes, um, actually, you know, I think it's really helpful when people can see perhaps documentaries or other, um, maybe even read a memoir or see other shows on TV that um, basically, you know, illustrate the same things that they're experiencing, only they don't realize it. And by watching these things, you know, I think the mind starts to click um, because when you're in these situations, your your critical thinking is shut down, right? <clears throat> so by seeing uh, some of these programs, I think it's one way that helps kind of <clears throat> jar someone's critical thinking abilities and gets them to say, wait a minute, that looks awfully familiar. <laughs> oh, wait a minute, that sounds like something I'm told. Um, so many people actually have come to me because they've seen one or another of these documentaries or <clears throat> listen to a podcast where I'm talking about things and and they make the connections. So what, when I saw that and I saw what they went through and I started looking at my own life, that's when I started to mm-hmm. kind of get onto Twitter and I found you and so many other cult survivors. However, it got me on this journey for recovery as well as understanding what the hell happened and i wanted to share with you kind of you know the experiences because many of my audience are either family members of ex-members or ex-members or they're probably still you know sucked in and are secretly hopefully we have some you know people who are listening who are in the community but i doubt Mm -hmm. because there's no there's no um capacity for them to listen but i hope well, anyways, I want to break it down, and especially okay. for the audience who uh, is just getting on board. I used to be in a Catholic religious community, and for those who aren't aware of religious communities, you know there are different sets of profession. Uh, you take your vows for three years, and then at the end of three years, you're given the the freedom. It's supposed to be you're given the freedom to choose whether to stay another three years under these vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience, or you can freely freely leave no, uh, no strings attached. And then at the end of the second term of three years, it should be your freedom to decide whether this is the life you want to live or whether you want to go home. Now, in my community, uh, the founder, his name is Father Bing. Father Bing Ariano. And even just saying his name, I get goosebumps. Um, 
But so before I joined, I had the impression that this community was uh, going to help me, going to help me to get a good education. I left during high school with the promises that mm -hmm. I would be educated, that I would be taken care of, that I would be a missionary traveling the world. And then when I joined, I was pretty much stuck on different compounds. Uh, before continuing any further, is that normal in cults where they kind of sell you one thing and then once you're in, they, they kind of give you another thing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's very common. It's, <clears throat> you know, it's what we might call the bait and switch. Um, during, during recruitment, of course, there will be a lot of what we call love bombing, you know, making you feel very special making you feel like you found a new family, you know, you found a purpose in life. It all sounds really wonderful and hunky-dory. Um, and then when you get in, maybe not right away, but slowly over time, everything changes. And, you know, I think if people knew what they were getting into, they would never join. You know, if you knew what the yeah. bottom line was, you know, so it's really like, you know, you're not playing with a full deck, so to speak. Um, and that's the deception that starts very, very, very often at the at the beginning. Um, and then once you're in and you've given up things from your former life, you've perhaps, you know, stopped seeing certain people or your family or whoever, it gets harder and harder to disengage because you have so much invested in it. Okay, so, the, so I'm just, I'm trying to understand each step that mm -hmm. was culty because I think many people, you know, being Catholic, it's it's hard to you know distinguish which part was at least you know part of the normal religion and which part was abusive. And mm -hmm. so up, upon joining, you know, there's this period called the postulancy, followed by the novitiate, which is about a two-year period where supposedly you're supposed to try it out and see if it works for you. Now, when I joined, what I was told right away is that if I leave, one, I'm going to be a misfit for the rest of my life. Two, I'm going to be cursed. And three, that I'm going to, I mean, it's all about diabolical stuff. It's, it's, it's like all about, you know, doom and damnation pretty much. And so I joined at 16, 17, and I was afraid to think outside of the bubble, outside of that box. Uh, is it normal for cult leaders and, you know, cult societies kind of put this, this box around people so that they don't think outside of it? No, absolutely. I mean, it's what I call the, the self-sealing system or the closed group. So what happens is um, over time through the indoctrination process where you're basically taught all the things you need to believe, the need, the things you need to think, the way you need to behave and do, all of that creates this closed world that you're in. So, so you're in kind of an altered reality, so to speak. And, and then within that, there, there are always these sort of threats of what will happen to you if you leave. And, that, and they may be different with different groups, uh, for example, the group I was in, which was a political cult, you know, we were told, well, you know, if you leave, you're just going to die in the streets. Nobody is going to care about you. You're a dirty old communist, blah, 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 blah. 
So, you know, every group has its way that they kind of implant these fears and paranoia in people. And as you, as time goes on, you, you internalize all that. So it really becomes who you are and what you believe. And it's part of the, the glue that makes it all stick together. And you end up, you know, the way I describe it, you end up psychologically trapped in this closed world. Oh man, it's, I'm I'm listening to you and and you're sharing about that that paranoia. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they set up this paranoia of if you leave, you know you're going to be you know you're gonna hate you're going to be demonic you're gonna be possessed and all these bad things. However, there was also another side to it where there was a paranoia with the rest of society. So they Absolutely. would say that uh, the Freemasons are are out for us. Uh, there's like uh satanists who are trying to kill us so they would keep us hidden um i remember we'd be like there was a there was a time it was called the 40 days i think it lasted longer than 40 days but we were all uh on this compound the brothers and sisters in the philippines and we were all underground we were all in our basements or we were like in in the churches we would we were sleeping in the church we'd close we'd like we'd get curtains and clothes and we'd be we'd be, I'm trying to think of the English, um, we'd be, uh, <laughs> we'd be shut out from the rest of society. Mm-hmm. And the, the fear that they gave us was the end of the world is coming, the communists are coming, the Freemasons, whatever. And we're going to be the, um, the center for salvation for right. the church. Right. Does that sound typical of, of cult language? Yes, absolutely. I mean, every cult has its own way that they um, illustrate these things and describe these things. And, um, you know, one of the first people who studied this was was a psychiatrist named Robert Lifton, and he called it the whole program he called thought reform. But one aspect of it is what he called loaded language which means that the cult will use words. They may be the same words you've always used, but they give it a new meaning, or they sometimes even just create their own language. And through that uh, is another way to bind you to the group to on some level make you feel elite because you have this special way of talking and looking at things. And it's also a way to shut down your critical thinking, because when you hear Freemasons or you hear communists or you hear demonic, you know exactly what that means. You don't have to think about it. Right. So it's like a trigger moment. Right. And it's a way to shut you down. Right. So it it creates this this paralysis, so to speak. So you've got all the fears, all the paranoia that's generated. And the flip side of that is you have this feeling that you are in some very, very special group that's gonna survive the apocalypse, you know, survive the invasion by whomever um, because you've got this one leader and that can only happen by staying with this one leader. Uh, so it really creates this, both this us versus them mentality where it's us against the rest of society, right? Um, and then it also creates this absolute devotion to the leader and a fear of leaving the leader um, because you believe he's right and, and pure and accurate. Um, so it's, it, it has many, many facets to how it 
uh, keeps you isolated. You know, physically they kept you isolated by putting you in that basement, but they also had you psychologically isolated. Yeah, and for for some it was you know just forty days. For me, it was a year, a year and three months. You know, of, in the basement. Of, well, okay. So for one year, my my obedience. You know, t- you know, talking about obedience, my my obedience was to be in the chapel and pray. So I'd be there from my rising was 1245 in the morning. You know, mm-hmm. you, you go in there at 130, you pray and I'm in there all day until nine or 10 p.m. So it's like I'm there pretty much by myself. Sometimes they join to pray next to me, but I wasn't part of the community. So it was like a shun, but it still feels solitary. Mm-hmm. And then. And then after that, I did get sent on a mission to Puerto Rico, which it seemed very Catholic. It was a normal mission. Just, you know, evangelize to the school, you know, teach a little bit. And I got upset with one of the, uh, I guess, superiors. I got pissed off when I told her, you know, I told her, you know, back off, lady. (laughs) Because they really, they choke, they just suffocate you. So I, I, I broke. And because I failed the test, uh, Father Bing, he had me stay in the basement for three months. And it, we called it the end times basement because in that basement, this is in America now. In that basement, we had all the uh, uh, storage food, um, you know, like when the end time comes, we have all this, all this canned food. So I just stayed there and just um, that, that, that sucked. But like you, like you were saying, yeah, they, they, they keep you physically isolated and also psychologically so so quick question um what's a good way to approach the healing process in in those kind of circumstances especially for someone like me well you know the healing process is is different for everyone and will take different amounts of time um for someone who's had a really intense experience like you did, it's probably going to be at least several years of sort of unpacking it all. And in my opinion, the, the first thing to do is understand what happened to you and how it happened to you. And sometimes that's painful, but it's also demystifying, right? It's, it's, looking looking at the reality that you were in. So I often recommend that that people make lists, like they can take um, Lifton's eight characteristics or my four features from my bounded choice theory, which is described in, in my book that you mentioned in the beginning. And you you take, you know, you write each one of these on a piece of paper and then below it, you write So if you take loaded language below it, you write all the words and terminology that was used and what that meant, not only what it meant, but what was its purpose. And then you can do that with the authority figure. You can do it with the ideology, et cetera, et cetera. Because once you see it all written out, you know, and you don't do this all in one sitting, this takes time, you know, and you'll, things will come back to you and then you might need to take a break, which is fine. But once you see it laid out like that, it's so enormous. And and at that point, you realize the enormity of the closed system that you were in and the way it affected your emotions, your brain, your thoughts, your everything. 
it relieves some of the pressure. It relieves some of the guilt and shame, right? Because people leave these groups like you, I'm sure, thought, why did I do it? Why did I stay? Why did I go along with this or that, right? Um, because in, on some level, we're all victims, but we were also all participants in that system. So we might have been really mean to someone or we might have done something illegal or whatever it is. So there's a lot of guilt and shame. And by by seeing the picture, seeing the whole thing, it's like, wow, no wonder I did what I did. Right. So that's one way to kind of take it apart and and work on the healing process. And I'm I'm glad that I'm finally on the healing process, because for several years there was this bit of denial and mm -hmm. I, I think you mentioned in, um, I think it was on The Wire mm -hmm. uh, on YouTube about this shelf of doubts. Yes. Uh, you just put all these doubts. Can you explain to, to the audience really quick, uh, briefly what that, what that uh, shelf of doubts is? Sure. Um, I believe that every cult member, even the, the true believer, because I was certainly a true believer, um, every cult member has doubts and sees things that they're like, mm, I'm not so sure. It may be just a flash in your mind, right? But you know that you can't engage that doubt. You know that you can't express it because obviously you would be punished, right? You yeah. can't express any doubt or hesitation. So you keep putting these little things. This is the metaphor I use. You keep putting these things on this shelf in the back of your head. And one day, one more thing is going to happen that you either do or see, whatever, and that shelf breaks. Once that shelf breaks, you, more often than not, you will have the realization that something's not right here. And you're able to at least say that to yourself. You may not think it's a cult. You may not know what it is, but you know that it's not good and you know that it's not healthy for you. So once that's opened up a little bit in your mind, then you're able to hopefully start thinking about exiting, thinking about how do I get out of this? And that again is gonna be a very individual process because some groups go after people if they try to leave. There's, even though your doubts have come forward, there's still the belief that, oh my God, what if they're right? What if I leave and they're right and I'm gonna die in the streets, right? So it takes time for someone to figure out how to leave. Maybe you're in another country, you might not have any money. You know, There's all these factors that feed into that, um, which is why I always tell people on the outside, you know, if you have someone in a group, stay in touch with them as much as you can and, and and let them know that you'll, you'll, you would be that safe haven if they wanna leave. You may not say it directly like that, but let them know there's some place they can go to where they'll be safe. It's interesting that you bring that up about how the family should you know, keep contact. And I, I say that because just recently, probably last week, I wrote a post on Facebook because most of the people who are on Facebook, uh, the post was, about my experience of family separation mm -hmm. and how my family was being lied to. I was being lied to. And you might've seen it on Twitter where I mentioned how I couldn't even attend my grandmother's uh, funeral right. because of the, uh, what, what they would call it family detachment. And so I wrote this post about how, you know, they would call and I have to say, Oh mom, I'm fine. Don't worry. I'm okay. 
Mm -hmm. uh, but deep down, I was really in agony. But right. the, you were the, dying inside. Dying, but there's people around. And even when I would see my family, there's always people around. So I always had to keep this, uh, this measured behavior. And right. I, as I wrote this post, people were, you know, coming forward about their own experiences, you know, ex-nuns, ex-brothers, about not being free. Um, mm -hmm. I think a, a concern with with some of the uh, the mem ex members or family members is how do I how do I talk to them if they're being monitored so closely? How can I reach out to them? What should I do? Well, you know, again, that that's going to depend on the age of the person, the background with the family, who's the closest person in the family to them, um, and if if they actually can have actual verbal communication or if it needs to be by letters and postcards or whatever. Um, but, but the best thing is if you know where the person is and you're able to have some kind of contact to do it in whatever way you can and with several people, if that's possible, maybe it's a best friend from school. Maybe it's, you know, an aunt that that person really loved and was close to. And then you want to, maybe just talk about neutral things like, oh, remember Christmas in 1997 when Santa Claus's beard fell off or whatever, right? Like try to stimulate these memories of good times before the person got involved um, and try to talk about things. You know, obviously if someone's listening in or someone's right there who's in the cult, you, you have to be a little careful um, or if mail is being monitored, which often happens, yes. but right. But you always want to try to convey that you're, you love that person. You're there for that person. Um, you'll, you know, you'll help in whatever way you can. Can you send a box of cookies? Can you, you know, whatever, um, because you want to maintain that connection. You want to try to spark that emotional tie so that the, again, so that the person knows if, if they're thinking about leaving, well, I can go to Aunt Betty. I know Aunt Betty loves me and, and will take me in, right? Um, so it, it never cut the person off. If the person wants to cut you off, fine. There's nothing you can do about that, but don't you ever cut the person off and don't be confrontational. Like you don't wanna say, Oh, honey, I think you're in a cult. You better get out now. Don't say that. But you know, that's just going to drive them further in. You have to be very subtle in your communications. Okay, it's very good because um, I I feel that a lot of my friends who you know are no longer supporting, but they have someone who's in the cult in the community. I'll call it. Okay. Um, <laughs> I had a friend telling me, a, well, a few friends saying, I'm afraid for my daughter, my son to, to get out of there because they are so infantile now. They're so childlike and they're so dependent. When I talk to them, they're so, it, it's like they stayed 15, 16, 17 years old. And, right. and what I'm hearing is I, from my friends, it's like, Hey, I have a job. I'm, I'm busy. I'm living my life. And, and they're adults now, but I'm afraid if they come back, how am I going to take care of them? Well, I mean, that's a personal decision, but yes, cults infantilize people. That is part of the process, right? It's to make you be childlike in your obedience and your devotion. But if 
if you're available to take that person in um, and and if you just let them decompose, which is what they'll need, when, when people come out, they need to know they're safe and they need to know they're not gonna be confronted. They may not wanna talk, fine, they don't have to talk. They may wanna talk a blue streak, fine, let them talk a blue streak. But they are if they are now adults, when they come out, they're gonna first of all feel such relief. It's it's it feels like getting out of prison. It's like oh my god, right? So, and in most cases, I don't think they're gonna bombard you with needs. Their need is to rest and recuperate. Yes, have meals. Um, maybe at some point be able to get a job. But in the beginning, they need to rest and recuperate. And you can always get a copy of my book, Take Back Your Life. And if they start reading that, that'll help them a great deal. Um, get them in touch with other former members and they can talk with each other about it and they don't have to put all that on you. It's not like you have a three-month-old infant coming home, right? <laughs> that you have to you know, change their diapers and warm up the milk for them. But you know, I would say if you're someone who has someone on the inside and you have the capacity to take them in, even if it's for a short time. Um, th that's one of the best things you can do in the world is to, to help save someone from, from the brutality that they're living every day. You make such a good point about that, that air of freedom. And I, I've been speaking to, I don't want to say ex-members because it's very complicated because like I was saying, it, this organization is like as a, a Catholic community and mm -hmm. many, many, most of us, I think joined, maybe all of us joined for good intentions. Of course. And so once the Vatican got involved, uh, what they did was they removed Father Bing from authority. It's like, okay, you're not going to be an authority anymore. And I, I think the purpose is because in other organizations it, within the church, like the Franciscans or Jesuits, you know, there has to be that, um, independence because one day the founder is going to die and we're going to have to see like how this works so once father bing was was removed what i saw was he still took followers with him and had a split and from what i'm hearing from the survivors those who stayed they were telling me one was telling me it felt like being freed from a concentration camp and he was saying i didn't know what to do i didn't know what to do with this freedom uh, is that typical that, you know, for, for those who are freed from such oppression and such control that there is this confusion as to what to do next in life? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's very, very common. Um, you know, because again, depending on the length and intensity of the experience, people are going to have psychological after effects they they could possibly have physical after effects if there if there was no decent medical care while they were in the group they're going to have philosophical after effects meaning what do i believe in now you know how did god let this happen to me um they're going to have attitudinal after effects in the sense of you know how do I relate to other people? What do I think of the world now? You know, I was so afraid of it, but gee, it looks like everybody's so nice. You know, this doesn't make sense. So there is a lot of confusion 
And there also may be still some of those doubts, like, am I doing the right thing? Should I go back? Am I just being a terrible person? Am I being demonic? Whatever, whatever the terminology was. So that confusion needs to settle down and sort itself out. I mean, when I got out of my group, I was 41 years old. I felt like I was 15. I had, I felt like I didn't know how to cross the street, really literally. And I went to New York and I got a job. Um, I lived in a suburb, I'm not right in, in Manhattan right away, but I lived in a suburb. I went to work every day. I was okay at my work because, you know, cult members know how to work, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I was good at my job, but the rest of the time I was an absolute mess and I didn't know how to talk to people. I didn't know what to say. I felt guilty about all the things I had done while I was in the cult because I had been in leadership. It was, it was horrifying and, and I would be so confused and, and my cult dissolved. So I, I couldn't think about, oh, I'm gonna go back to that because there was no back to, but it was difficult in trying to make relationships, to, to go on dates, um, to go on business lunches. Like here I was in New York, it's the cultural Mecca of the world, right? And I hadn't, I'd only seen like two movies in 10 and a half years. I didn't know what anybody was talking about. I felt like a complete idiot, like I landed from Mars. And, you know, then people would say, oh, well, what were you doing before you came to New York? Well, I wasn't gonna say, oh, I was in this horrible cult, you know, that beat me for 10 years. So everybody experiences that and you just have to do it a little bit at a time, whatever your own process is. And it's really important, especially if you have a number of people in your community who left and they're still in touch with each other. It's important to never compare yourself to someone else. Like, oh, look at Ryan. He's so much further ahead in his recovery than me. Look, he's got this podcast. He's doing so well. How come I'm still just crying every day and freaking out? Don't ever, ever do that. Every person's journey is their own journey. And you have no idea what Ryan's really going through. So just take care of yourself and focus on your own self-care. And it's difficult because in a sense, this is this is now the time to be a little bit selfish. You need to think about yourself and what's good for you. And of course, you've been in an environment where the last thing you were supposed to do was think about yourself, right? Yeah. So that feels like a contradiction, but it's important to do all the things that make you feel better. And you, when you mentioned selfish, I, I, it's like a trigger word because in, in the community, you know, you mentioned, you know, thought reform and how they use loaded language. So like Father Bing, he would always use like um, sayings that he would make. And one of them is self-will, self-love is of the devil or, you know, self-will, mm -hmm. self-will is you're worshiping yourself or self-will, self-love. And so now, you know, hearing about the importance of taking care of yourself, it's, for me, you know, even now, seven years out, it feels like, oh, that's, I still want to block it. Yes. But I know, like, like in my mind, I know it's not a right philosophy. So I'm, even me up to now, I'm still in that healing process of yes, rewiring I'm, my mind. I'm sure. And, you know, I think one thing that helps, it, this is back to my list. I'm, I'm so into lists. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I think, I'm, and especially writing things down, you know, it's important to write by hand and not on the computer, 
because when you write by hand, it goes into your brain and it stays there, which isn't the same when you're just typing on a, on a keyboard. So making lists of your values. So make a list of the values of the cult and, and then what they really were, or again, what they were meant to do. And then make a list of what you want your values to be now. And are any of those left over from the cult? And if so, well, that may be okay. I mean, sometimes it's important to realize that not everything is all bad because if it were really all bad all the time, no one would ever stay. So there may have been good things about that experience, right? Like in my cult, I was told to build the publishing house. Well, I learned all about publishing. I'm not going to deny that, right? I wish I had learned it another way, but I learned it there, right? <laughs> so we need to sort that out. So, so making a list of values, what are your values? What do you want your values to be now? Um, I, that sometimes can really help with that conflict in your mind about selfish, right? About those little leftover um, things from the cult that sometimes trigger you to resist, <clears throat> I'm sorry, trigger you to resist your own healing. And I'm going to tell the audience right now that they better do their homework, you know, make, make these lists. And do, do, do. <laughs> I mean, we're, we were used to doing assignments and, uh, like we had all these checklists of things that mm -hmm. you had to do and mm -hmm. it was just enormous. So you, you wake up at 1240, 12.30, 12.45 in the morning and you're up all day. And like, for example, you have to pray from like 1.30 to like seven o'clock. Then you have to do all these uh, exercises, then like uh, yard work. And then you have to study the books that the founder made for us. So it's like, we're, we're getting indoctrinated. We're getting sleep deprived. We're right. getting, I, I uh, the lowest I got, I think was like 110, 115 pounds. And normally I'm, I'm a lot, I'm a lot heavier than that, but um, there were just so many things. And you know, as a, as a Catholic, I saw it as uh, being um, just a, dis I just saw it as a discipline. Right. But, but then with like the vows of, you know, especially obedience. Uh, I know that many in the audience, they've, they've already been familiar with the fourth degree of obedience. But for those who aren't aware, uh, in, in Catholicism and religious groups, there is this, this vow of obedience. However, it's supposed to be not abusive. It's supposed to be, you know, a little bit more charitable. Uh, unfortunately, so the, the idea of obedience from what I understood was that there's three degrees. The first degree, I believe, was uh, you submitting your judgment. Then you submit. Second degree is uh, submission of uh, your reason, where you don't agree with the reason at all, but you just follow. And then the third degree is you submit your will and, and go with it. And then the fourth degree was, was like the code word we had, which was uh, to, to go to an extreme. And I'll give an example. Uh, if you love God uh, and you've seen that there have been so many people who have died for the faith, then you should be willing to take up your cross and follow Christ even to death. Mm -hmm. So we're going to give you this obedience, which isn't going to kill you, but which will uh, hopefully uh, toughen you up. And right. they would they would call it an act of humiliation to make you humble. And that was 
the fourth degree was, I'm like beating around the bush, but fourth degree was uh, members had to eat their own feces, uh, get spat upon, uh, or have uh, feces smeared in their face, pray in the chapel while they're having this, or, you know, we have to slap each other, beating each other. Um, is that, I don't know, I know that, that's abuse. But that is that, definitely abuse. But yes. in our, our mindset, and I didn't personally do that, I've uh, the, the feces, I did beat other people, you know, with the belt or they'd beat me. And, you know, I would see members crying and I'm crying, but it's like, I'm, I'm numbing my mind. It's like, okay, okay. I got to do this because right. this, this is God's love. But what can you say about those actions to kind of break it down for those who have been through it? Like, what would you say? Well, you know, that's the worst kind of trauma that someone can experience. Um, and what it says to me is that your leader, Father Bean or whatever his name is, is definitely a malignant narcissist. Um, narcissists, of course, are people who think the world revolves around them, right? They think they're a type of God, right? They think everybody is there to serve them and to listen to them, right? So there's different, there's four different types of narcissist but the malignant narcissist which is what most cult leaders are are the ones who are a little bit of a sociopath or a psychopath which are interchangeable terms and those are the people who create these really really harmful uh horrific environments for their followers you know so we had Keith Ranieri, who was the head of Nixium, who had, you know, the sex slaves who got branded and had had young women on these diets of, you know, several hundred calories till they were completely emaciated. Or you had uh, Colonia Dignidad in, in uh, I think it was in Chile, where, where it was like a concentration camp, you know, or you have other, other, many other groups where people are beaten, children are beaten, children are sexually exploited, all of that. Those malignant narcissists create this kind of horror where, where you're told that this kind of, this cruel behavior of beating and eating feces and just this unimaginable stuff, you know, you're told that it's, it's pertinent to do these things for your own salvation, right? That it's part of this religious worldview. And that is so sick and it is so exploitative and it is so abusive. And for those of you who experience that, it's the kind of trauma that takes a long time to recover from, but you will recover from it. But those are horrific experiences. I mean, especially, if, especially for young people. Um, and like you said, you joined when you were 16, 17. You know, it's important to know that the human brain is not fully developed until you're 25. So that means that everything that happens during those early years, it has much more of an impact. It goes much deeper into your psyche, into your system. Um, and and that's, that's a, just a whole nother aspect of the cruelty. So it was at 24 or 25 when I actually, I guess my brain is fully developed by that, by that time. That's when I 
finally started looking at the shelf of doubts within my mind. Mm -hmm. But it was so painful because, you know, I had been, you know, overall, I was in there for 11 years. But um, once I turned like 24, 25, and I, I started seeing the inconsistencies, how they would give uh, these obediences and how they say that, oh, yes, we're Catholic. And then they would keep us hidden because they were saying that all the, the rest of the church is a bunch of uh, Freemason devil worshipers. All these things were clicking in my mind, but I was just, I was afraid of what was going to happen. And mm -hmm. because they would use the example of ex-members, oh, you see, you know, they're they're messed up outside, you know. So they're, if you leave, you're going to experience even worse. Right. Um. So the the year I joined, two thousand four, uh, I I was already made aware of of the fourth degree pretty right away, and I I think it was actually Father Bing, during um either a homily or one of his talks, he would talk about how the saints were so uh in line in tune with god and they would do all these um uh brave things and give an example of of a saint who who possibly did that uh, that's that's a that's a different uh avenue about the saints but already uh i felt that i was being indoctrinated being taught on on the importance of absolute obedience because in in his words the way he said it was, as the founder, no one can question me. Mm -hmm. uh, even, even the rest of the church, they don't have power because this gift has been given to me by the Holy Spirit. Those mm -hmm. were his words. Right. But then later he was saying, okay, before, like before I joined, we did a lot of repression, uh, like the fourth degree and all these beatings. And he said, we're going to stop that. Now we're going to, instead of repressive system, we're going to implement the preventive system and the preventive system the idea was it's supposed to be at a charity uh there's supposed to be like an elder member watching over the rest of the flock however there's always someone who's ticking down all of the violations mm -hmm. and then after the preventive system you know it, with it came the zero tolerance so you have all all these you have the this this monitor who's writing down all your violations and even now I still feel kind of guilty because I I I would do it you know you look for people's faults for example being sleepy or being late to prayers and the the punishment would be you know beatings or you know removal of meals so I'm doing it you know ticking down people's violations because it helped me stay awake because I know that if I fall asleep someone's going to kick my ass so wow. it was it was a circle but with the the repressive system it was replaced with like i said the preventive system and then the and then the uh, zero tolerance um I, I i don't know how to digest now that i'm talking about it you know freely i'm still struggling in digesting what the hell happened to me mm -hmm. well you know it's um this this idea of having people reporting on each other, you know, that again is a way that that cult leaders build in this uh, sense of loyalty only to him, because you can't trust anyone else, right? You know, even your own brother or your own mother would write down your violations and turn them in, right? And and so that inability to trust anyone that that's 
also a, a, something that people need to deal with when they get out because you're not used to having trust. And so you don't, you now don't know who, who can I trust, right? Who can I tell these things to? Who can I be safe around? You know, who should I have a friendship with or, or a relationship? Oh, I'm sorry. There's a big, can you hear that? There's a giant garbage truck out there. <laughs> I, I, I only hear you, Yanya. <laughs> um, let me, I'm going to mute this. Can you hear that? Okay. I want to give it a pause. Right. So, okay. so by, by father Bean, uh, or whatever his name, what is his name? Father Bean? His name is Edgardo Ariano, but he goes by Bing. That's his Bing, like Bing Crosby. Yeah. That's like his stage name. God. Um, anyway, so father Bing comes up with these, you know, these various systems that you have to go through, um, to survive. And, you know, one of the one of the other helpful lists <laughs> to make <clears throat> is to do a timeline, um, which is something that I also did, which I put on one side of a piece of paper, everything that was happening in the cult, right? The different campaigns or, you know, when the Vatican did this or when the Vatican did that or when a location changed or what you know, some new edict came out, right? So put all that on one side and then put on the other side, what is happening with you? And it, it, for me, it helped me see, oh, that's why I was punished that time. Oh, it's because I traveled with the leader and they wanted to make sure to shut me up when we got back home. So I wouldn't talk about the awful things she did, right? So of course they put me on punitive suspension, which meant I couldn't talk to anyone for a month, right? So you, you again, gain a better understanding of why things were happening to you at a certain time because of something that was going on in the group or with the leader. Uh, some shift and change in something. So that might be helpful for you to sort of understand these systems and and your participation and experience uh, with those. I haven't done a timeline, so that will really help me to understand and break down. So I, I'm excited too, because for me, this is even my own homework assignment that I really, I really need to do. And I hope that, you know, those in the audience who have been through either my cult or other cults that they also, you know, do this homework to really, you know, take it serious that, you know, there is hope out there. And I think yes. well, for me, the first year I was, I hesitate to say, but it was like being suicidal. Mm. Like I, I didn't want to take my life, but the thinking is because, you know, father Bing would always say, if you leave us, you know, God wants nothing to do with you. So my thought process was, why right. the hell am I even alive? You know, God doesn't love me. Like, I, I just yeah. want my life to end. Yes. And then I start seeing little by little, like you were saying, once you get uh, used to society, it's like, well, people aren't so bad. And, and then mm -hmm. I started, you know, finding love here and there. And it's like, okay, you know, that's, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm making, I'm making it through. So right. I, I, I was making it through, but I think a, a large part of my um, making it through was uh, pretending it never happened. And I'm, I'm mm -hmm. mentioning that because many people who are Dude. followers, they reach out to me and tell me that I should just shut up. I should pretend it never happened and just move on with my life. 
Mm-hmm. Is that normal that followers kind of try to shut up the the ex-members? Oh, of course, of course. I mean, they don't want anyone talking bad about the experience or about the group because then <clears throat> no new people would want to join. I mean, they don't want any bad press out there, right? So all groups are going to do a kind of damage control, you know, and part of that may be shutting up those who are speaking out, either with legal threats or doing something to make your life miserable or just bad mouthing you saying, you know, saying terrible things about you. Um, But what you experience is very typical. I mean, feeling suicidal, especially in the beginning is another very normal after effect. I, I went through that as well. I mean, I luckily found a really good therapist and I, and, and to this day, I say she really saved my life. I mean, I was just desperate. I didn't want to live another minute. Um, and so that's getting through that is for many people, sort of the first stage of recovery. Um, and then working on whatever other issues there are after that. So, and speaking out is a very individual choice. Not everyone does that or has to do that. I mean, and and people shouldn't feel pressure that they have to speak out um, because sometimes people get involved in that kind of activism too soon and, and that can that can kind of hold back their own recovery because um, it can get very demanding and, you know, working with the media can get nasty, cool. whatever. So that's an individual choice. But dealing with it i mean a lot of people and i i see this especially with men uh tend to leave these groups and just kind of want to shove it away and not deal with it and that's not helpful because it'll definitely come back to bite you at some point in your life so it's much better to just kind of take the bull by the horn so to speak and and deal with it in whatever way you like it doesn't have to be every minute of every day but um, it's important to unpack uh, what happened to you and the things you were made to believe, because otherwise you're still seeing the world through that cult mindset. Um, so, I mean, I've had people come to me 20 years after they've been out and they're finally starting to deal with it. They finally realize that this has affected their whole life, you know. So um, the sooner you can do it, the better, uh, in my opinion. Uh, but also, again, that's a very individual choice. And like you said, you know, people even, you know, 20 years later, they still have that cult mindset. When I left, uh, they told me to stay away for a few months. And the the idea is so that you can uh, regather yourself, you know, you can, you know, regroup. And, and so I did that. The way I left was I actually had to do violations. I had to get a girlfriend. Because there was no way for me to leave. And I, you know, tried and, you know, they would say, oh, I'm a queer for asking for spiritual direction. So there was all these things and mm. I just got pissed off. So, and for me, it was, I, I felt like I was stripping my identity mm-hmm. because I wanted to leave on good terms. And yet to leave, I had to get a girlfriend and sneak out. And then I know that they're, they're using my name. And it hurts, but I, I had to get the hell out of there. Yeah. So I, after the six months of separation from the community, I asked permission. So I'm still like submissive mentally to them. I asked permission to visit them in their in their new compound in Alabama. And when I went there, Father Bing just gave me five minutes to talk to him. 
And that was, he was telling me I should get a job to uh, maybe become a nurse. And then once I get money to fund the community. So mm. it was about funding. And then two, he said, if I speak about anything that I had seen in the community, that it was a grave sin, punishable, you know, for, for hell. So I was quiet, but then as I started, you know, analyzing his missions and how he would talk about everyone else, something broke in me where I just said, you know, fuck this. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, do my healing. I'm going to do my journey. But like you were saying, not everyone uh, goes through that, the same process. Mm-hmm. Um, for those who are not yet on the journey for healing, what would you suggest or where would you suggest that they go to kind of uh, start off that healing journey? Well, I, it, again, it'll be different for different people, but I think um, maybe, you know, having coffee with someone like you and talking about what they're going through um, and just open, you know, finding a trustworthy person and opening up a little bit to that person. Um, it might be getting getting my book, Take Back Your Life, and starting to look at it. I hate to constantly be mentioning that, but it's been selling for years and people find it really helpful. Um, So that may be a way is to just kind of look through the book. You don't have to read it front to back. You can read different sections of it. Um, It's very reader friendly. It's not academic. Um, It, you know, people could you know, start by maybe watching, as we were talking about earlier, watching some of the documentaries about other groups and sort of making some connections in your mind and start writing stuff down. Um, You know, me, I always think writing is good. So maybe even just keeping a journal of what your thoughts are and kind of keep it to yourself and then go back and look at it and see what else comes forward. Um, But, you know, I think most people most people end up dealing with their recovery one way or another, Um, you know, either because some crisis will happen in their life and they realize it goes back to that or, you know, whatever it might be, something they see, something they read. Um, Yeah. I mean, I guess that those are my recommendations. But I I like the journal, the journal writing Mm -hmm. Uh, because, you know, during our time, one of our spiritual exercises was journal writing However, Father Bing would always tell us, you know, when you die, we're going to read all of it. So, oh, wow. So it better be like that of a saint. So I think <laughs> dur- during my 11 years, you know, there's that fear that, oh, man, I better, you know, so sometimes I, w- I would want to write in there, you know, fuck this or, you know, I, w- I would want to, but I can't because it's like, <laughs> if I'm going to be a saint one day, you know, I better keep it clean. And, and unfortunately, many members, they experience where superiors would read through their most uh like sacred you know writings you know their innermost thoughts and then use it against them yes yes and so this you know even though it was painful back then i think now that i'm i'm seeing journal writing in a different perspective feels a lot liberating Mm -hmm. and i'm going to keep on trying to do that so thank you for reminding the audience yeah, I you know, I, I, I'm sorry that so many of the things I'm recommending are, are obviously triggers for 
people who've left your group, um, the assignments, the writing, the lists. Um, if you can, you know, if people can kind of separate that in their mind as this has a different purpose, this is for you, it's not for them. Um, that may be helpful. And and there and there are other ways of creative expression. Um, some people paint and they paint these amazing things, um, which is another way of just, you know, kind of getting, working it out, getting it out of your system, um, or maybe pottery, or maybe, you know, whatever. So if, if right now writing is too much of a trigger, people might be able to find other ways to express what they're feeling. Like artistic hobbies. Yes, yes. I wanted to ask you a, a very important question uh, to kind of wrap things up. Okay, and that is because I've I've seen you, you know, helping probably thousands of people, and especially with your book, even more. And I want to ask you for like the haters out there who might be saying, "Yanya, stop wasting your time on these cults, on these survivors. They're just they're just brainwashed. You know, forget about them. Uh, live your life, do something else." Uh, what would your response be to that kind of mentality? Well, you know, I think that's a very cold, harsh mentality. Um, uh, first of all, I'll say I do plenty of other things in my life um, that don't have to do with this. I have a very full life and lots of interests and hobbies. Um, but I have certainly made this, you know, my life's mission in a way. Uh, I see it as turning a bad thing into a good thing. And I believe that survivors are important human beings, just like everybody else. And if, if there's anything I can do to help them in that process, I'm right there ready to do it. And I think part of the stigma, part of what I do is to get rid of the stigma that exists around cult members and former cult members, right? That these are stupid, lazy, crazy people who join these groups, and that is not the case. These are sometimes the best and brightest of our society. And, and if there's any common denominator of who joins, it's idealism. Just as you said, you, you, know, you and others joined because you thought this was a way to dedicate your life uh, to God and to serve. And you know, people, people don't join because they wanna be beaten and brainwashed. They join because they think they found purpose in life, a very meaningful, honest purpose and they got betrayed. Um, and so we shouldn't stigmatize them for that. Um, we should honor that and we should help them recover if we can and be supportive and listen. Well, thank you so much, Yanya, for everything, for being a, a light in my darkness, for mm -hmm. helping me to see that there is hope. And now I'm on the path to you know, hopefully bring that light of hope into other people's lives. Well, thank you so much for thank you, joining us. It's thank you. And thank pleasure. you for being you. <laughs> thank you. Any last words to the audience or is that no, wrapping it up? No, but just, you know, carry on and listen to Ryan's podcast. <laughs> hey, thank you so much, Yanya. Sure.